Let us pray. Gracious teacher, please find us alternative and attentive and responsive to your word. We do not want to be senseless, ignorant people. We do not let us become fools without understanding. But rather instruct us. Tell us what we need to know. Put your finger gently but precisely on our wrongs. Point out the way to walk rightly and train us in your ways. For Jesus' sake and for our good, we pray. Amen. Now we have the Old Testament reading, Ezekiel 17, numbers 22 to 24. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break it off. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading for this 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time and this special home group Sunday is taken from Paul's second letter to the Corinthian congregation, uh, chapter 6, 11 through 13, and then also chapter 7, 2 to 4. It's on page 1162 and 1163 of your Bibles. 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. 7, 2 to 4. Let us hear God's word together. Paul writes, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Verse 2 of chapter 7, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles My joy knows no bounds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a few months ago in Korea, I got an email from a colleague. And this was a very senior colleague of mine, one that I greatly admired. 
And something about this email bugged me. It just kind of didn't sit right with me. And I read this email from this colleague of mine over and over again. And the more I did, the more kind of curt it felt, the more sort of barbs I felt like were hidden in it. And they were kind of poking at me. And then, of course, I started feeling like she was being ice cold toward me as we passed one another in the hallways. I thought that I saw a frown on her face every time that she glanced at me. And so I became convinced that this colleague was not for me, but was rather against me. Now, she was a Christian. She still is. She was a fellow missionary teacher with me in Korea. And yet, my heart left no room for several weeks as I pondered what was going on with her. My heart left no room for the possibility that this colleague might actually really care for me at all. What happened is my heart closed. And then you know what happened? One morning, when I was minding my own business, she dropped by my room unannounced. She popped her head in, and she wanted to tell me something. She had realized that she had been a little bit slow from time to time uh, to answer my emails, to say hello and smile in the halls. And she told me, look, I, did, I don't mean anything by this. I've just been so busy and so preoccupied with everything I've got going on. I just want to make sure you know, Andy, that I appreciate you. So I had been bothered about this colleague for a month, and now here she was telling me exactly how things actually were with us, exactly where her heart actually was. And as you can imagine, I felt really stupid. It's home group Sunday, as we've said here at IPC. Uh, this is also our last message in this six-week series on people and pasture, our life together as God's people. And I think that this message and this passage by God's providence is quite relevant for people that are in home groups. And maybe it's even more relevant for you if you've thought about a home group but have resisted the idea of joining one because, after all, home groups offer the opportunity to have heart-to-heart -heart fellowship with other people in the church. And because home groups offer heart-to-heart, -heart, rich, warm fellowship. They're precisely the place, therefore, that we need to be vigilant against closed-heartedness, against the sort of thing I did with my colleague. I think Paul here, by the wisdom of the Spirit, gives us four things to do to resist this kind of closed-heartedness. And that's the first thing, to resist. The second is to repent, the third is to repeat, and the fourth is to return. Resist, repent, repeat, return. Isn't that convenient that they all start with re? Let's look at this together. First, resist. What is it that we see beginning back in Genesis chapter 3 and in story after story in our Old Testaments, in relationship after relationship there? What is it that the people of Corinth saw day in and day out, all over town, in relationship after relationship. 
What is it that we see here in our 21st century lives, day in and day out, in our places of work, in our families, in relationship after relationship? There's a sad thing that we often see, and that is suspicion. Suspicion. It's really the easiest thing to do, isn't it? To suspect people of being your enemies, to build a flimsy case on flimsy evidence that someone is from deep in their heart against me. And we do this, don't we? Adam and Eve themselves fell into sin when they began to suspect that God might not be as good and loving after all. And then, wouldn't you know it, the first human friendship and the first human marriage also grew full of distrust and suspicion. Their son, Cain, grew so suspicious of his brother, Abel, that the first siblings experienced a murder in their midst. Joseph's brothers were suspicious of his motivations. And so what did they do? They plotted to kill him and ended up selling him instead into slavery. Over and over again, suspicion makes people, in our Bibles and in our lives today, makes people slam the doors of their hearts against those that they've been called to love. And in Corinth, uh, it was happening too. Now, as one commentator puts it, Paul had unbosomed his heart to this church. He had put it all out there. But despite Paul's wide open heart, this same church was growing suspicious that Paul was actually closed hearted toward them. This Paul, gosh, he's always meddling in our personal business. We can't have Pastor Paul knowing about everything we're up to. His letters are so pushy and his preaching is so, I don't know, pushy. It's not safe to share our feelings and our lives with this fellow. And so what's the cost of the Corinthians' closed-heartedness toward Paul? It's a number of things. But one thing is that that church could have been the one place in town where suspicion was stopped, where we hit the pause button for a change on paranoia, where cynicism can't keep people from caring for one another. If the Corinthian Christians are closed-hearted and they're cagey and they're self-protective, then they end up being just like the rest of the society around them. Their life together as a congregation ends up contradicting their mission and their message together as a congregation. If you're in a home group, you've got to resist, don't you? the impulse to close your heart out of self-protection. If you are not in a home group because you've already closed your heart out of self-protection, then you've got to work to pry that heart of yours open again. If you're a Christian, you've got to resist the temptation to suspect that people's hearts are forever closed to you. And you've got to resist the temptation to close yours faster and first. 
The very witness of the church depends on it. The very vitality and glory and holiness and joy of our congregation depends on it today, as it did in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And so when Paul realizes the church is doing this, closing their heart fast against him, thinking that his heart is closed against theirs, uh, he boldly counters their suspicions. See, they think it's Paul that doesn't love them. But he says instead, verse 12 of chapter 6, you are restricted in your own affections. It's not we who have stopped loving. It's your hearts that have closed against us. My heart, the heart of my colleagues in ministry, they remain wide open to you. Don't close your heart, Pastor Paul says to his people. It's the closing of your heart that suffocates our relationship, he says, and that will suffocate the very life of your fellowship as a church. Don't slam shut the door of your heart. Now, please tell me that when you hear something like this, please tell me that I'm not the only one who struggles to resist this temptation to close my heart down first and protect myself. I struggle mightily with this temptation. You know what an old veteran kind of cranky pastor once said to me when I was younger in my ministry? He said, Andy, you have got to guard your heart. Don't show church people any sign of vulnerability. Don't speak about any of your sin or your frailty with church people. You know why, Andy? Because everything that you say can and will be used against you (laughs) by an angry, malicious church member. And, you know, when I first heard that, I was naive and I thought it was absurd. And even today, after ministry for many years and a fair amount of heartache, I still think that that is wrong and absurd. But you know what? I have been tempted to heed this cold-hearted warning from this cynical man. Because every now and then, people have used my vulnerability against me. Maybe you've had a similar experience in the church. But for our community to be Christian, for our church to be Christian, we must together resist the temptation to always be the first to slam shut the doors of our hearts against potential heartbreak and danger. Resist the temptation to close your heart. So resist is number one. Second is repent. We need to repent when the impulse to close our hearts in bitterness actually does overtake us. You maybe have heard before, repentance starts with a change of the mind. When we awaken to the reality of who God is, of who we are in a fresh way, then repentance happens. When our attitudes and our words and our actions are seen finally for what they really are, when we commit then to aligning them with what's true and real, repentance happens. And this is precisely what Pastor Paul wants for his people in Corinth. This is what I deeply desire for our life together as God's people here. That we would consistently, by God's grace, have changes of mind in conformity to reality. That we would have changes of attitude and words 
and actions that match these changes of mind. Luther said the whole Christian life is one of this change, this repentance. Too often we assume that the words and the actions of other Christians toward us are laced with malicious intents that aren't really there. That a loving rebuke from someone is really a rancid personal attack against us. That those who don't say just the kinds of things that we want to hear and say them in just the right delicate way are therefore attacking us with their words. Now, I'm new here, but especially, I can imagine, here in a multicultural church, we need to work, don't we, over time, not to assume the worst out of one another's hearts. When people's cultural expressions and their temperaments are different than ours, it might just be that their cultural expressions and temperaments are different than ours. Different is not bad, it's just different, right? Home groups are a great place to learn about diverse cultural expressions, to have our minds, to have our attitudes, to have our words and our actions challenged from time to time and changed for the better in conformity with reality as we actually get to know people from all over the world. In other words, intentional Christian relationships are actually the best context to practice and to perfect the art of Christian repentance. I was wrong, brother, in what I assumed about you. Sister, I'm sorry for saying it that way and all the rest. Don't let what happened to my heart with my colleague happen to your heart. And when you see it starting to happen to you, be quick to repent. Admit that your closed-heartedness is not the way of Paul, and it's certainly not the way of our Lord Jesus. Sometimes people really are nasty, but then you still have to repent of your impulse to close your heart first. C.S. Lewis says this so well. He says, you know, you can take your heart and you can lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Friends, the Lord Jesus did not redeem his dear church with his precious blood in order for her to be full of dark, motionless, airless, impenetrable, irredeemable hearts. Resist the temptation to close your heart and repent when you realize you've started to do so. So third, repeat. Resist, repent, repeat. What should we do when others act closed-hearted toward us? I think this is the hardest part coming here. Are you ready? We need to repeat our open-hearted commitment to people whose hearts appear to, and maybe actually are, fast closing against us. My colleague noticed my closing heart, and she had the guts to come into my study to take the initiative to tell me how things actually really were in her heart. 
Paul does the same thing with the Corinthians here. He speaks directly to them, even though they've accused him sometimes of being too bold and other times not really saying what he means. Actually, it's kind of funny in verse 11 of chapter 6. Our English says, we have spoken freely to you. But the Greek says, our mouths are wide open to you. It's not, of course, that Paul and his friends don't know when to shut up. It's not that they're being bossy or domineering or anything like that. But rather that they are speaking the truth in love. And they're doing so freely, without any constraint. In all Paul's words to the Corinthians, he has, chapter 7, verse 2, never been malicious toward them. He has not taken advantage of anyone. Verse 3, in all of his letters, in person, he's saying what he's saying, not to condemn them, not to get them down, but that they might be saved from unnecessary heartache and bitterness. In fact, in this passage, for each thing that he tells the Corinthian church that they must do, there are perhaps five things, he says, to show that his own heart beats not with bitterness toward them, but in fact with love. 6.11, our heart is wide open. 7.3, you are in our hearts. I'll live with you and I'll die with you. 7.4, I have great pride in you. When I think of you, I'm filled with comfort. When I suffer afflictions, I think of you and then I'm filled with joy, no matter what's going on. So I, I double dog dare you in the name of Jesus Christ to go and to confront a fearful, maybe irritable, bitter person. Someone that you sense has begun to push you away with a fast-closing heart. I dare you to confront them, not with condemnation for their closed-heartedness, but with the goodness of Christ Jesus lived out in words of love, in commitment, and in grace toward them. Don't just resist the urge to close your heart. Don't just repent when you do, but repeat over and over again, if necessary, your love to those who have fast-closing hearts. Say to them, sister, brother, in Christ, no matter what happens, I am always for you and never against you. So Paul would have us resist the temptation to close our hearts, repent when we do close them, and then repeat our love and commitment to those who are close-hearted. But finally, Paul would have us return. Return. Return where? Return to whom? Well, return to the source of true Christian open-heartedness. Return, therefore, to the Lord Jesus himself. Where do you think, after all, Paul gets the idea that the Christian life is a life of open-heartedness, even toward potential enemies? When rumors spread about Paul, when people make assumptions about him, when there's misunderstanding left and right, where do you think Paul gets the energy again and again to open his heart? Isn't it, after all, the Lord Jesus himself, who before any of us and before Paul himself said to the people that opposed him, you are, you are not restricted by my heavenly father 
or by the Holy Spirit or by me, but you are restricted in your own affections. Isn't it the Lord Jesus, after all, who first said to Jerusalem, as he looked at her, the city, the people of God, whom he held in his heart, but the city also that kills prophets and sends away its messengers, the city that he knew would soon kill him, even though he was Messiah. Isn't it the Lord Jesus who first said to Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? And it wasn't me that wasn't willing, but it was you who were not willing. Isn't it the Lord Jesus who faced much affliction and still had plenty of room in his heart, even joy, even pride, over both the simplest poor believers as well as those who were stumbling but true disciples? All the way to the cross, he's thinking of others. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And isn't that us? The Jerusalem crowd? the simple poor believer, the stumbling but true disciple. And in the end, brothers and sisters, we can love with the affection of Christ, hard as it is, because in the end, this whole business is really about Christ Jesus anyway. When we approach bitter people with the open-heartedness of Christ, we need to remember that it is actually the heart of Christ and not just our own, maybe not even primarily our own, that is moving toward them in love. We are just the ambassadors of the moving heart of love of the Lord Jesus towards a closing-hearted person. We can only move toward tough people in love if we ourselves are captivated by the love of Christ if we're secure in his great affection for us, no matter what anybody else might think. And so, are you? Are we? J. Oswald Sanders says that Christian maturity, I love this, is moving from thick, thin skin and a hard heart to thick skin and a soft heart from thin skin and a hard heart to thick skin and a soft heart. We've got to get thicker skin because it's about Jesus and not us after all. And we've got to get softer hearts because it's about Jesus and not us after all. But to get them and to keep them, we need to sink ourselves, don't we, deeper into the soft-heartedness of the Lord Jesus toward us. We who are prone to slam the doors of our hearts shut against him. He pursues us with his soft heart relentlessly in movement of love towards us. And without this movement of of his love towards our fast-closing hearts, we would remain bitter, we would remain paranoid, insecure, unloving, closed-hearted. But thank God he has moved to us and continues to move towards our hearts with his wide-open affection for us. And in the end, doesn't it all come down to this? Let us love as Jesus first loved us. And let us love out of his present, bottomless, relentless love for us, right here and right now. 
May the Lord Jesus himself be honored and glorified as we make our way toward one another in love. And as we do it out of celebration and out of testimony to his relentless love for us. Amen. Gracious God, this is no small task because we are so often small-hearted people. Enlarge our hearts, we pray. Use your spirit to inflate our hearts wide so that there is more room to receive the love of our Savior and more room, therefore, to spill out into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our home groups, into our lives, the love of Jesus with which he first loved us. Bless us in this way and make us a church with big, wide-open hearts. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.